Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Paul is, is, is smack dab in the middle of trying to bring clarity and correction to a church that needs it deeply. And, um, and this chapter is going to be another example of that, just like we've been looking at the, the previous three weeks as we looked at the situation going on with uh, church discipline and, and the leaven and, and this, this immoral man. We're going to move away from that. And we're going to talk about a different situation. But d- does anybody remember this guy and this other guy? And, and I think this other guy. Let's see. You can pull it up. There it is. Who, who's that guy in the middle? Wapner. Okay. That's, that's 10 points if you get Wapner. Who's the guy over here? Llewellyn. That's 40 points. This is 100 points. Who's that? Sheriff, isn't it Rusty? It's Rusty. None of you get that. I, I, it's Rusty. I'm pretty sure that's Rusty. So this is the People's Court. For a thousand points, who can sing the People's Court theme song? Da da da. Da 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 da. I used to watch People's Court. I mean, I was like 12 years old. People's Court was like my version of Judge Judy. And Judge Wapner was way more humble. And gracious than Judge Judy. I mean, she could, she, she should watch a lot more, um, Judge Wapner, because he was still a very just and righteous man. But he had some class that Judge Judy needs to, I have no idea about Judge Judy. I'm just kidding. I've actually never watched Judge Judy, but I did watch the People's Court with, with Judge Wapner and Doug Llewellyn. And I was a kid, like, I was in high school, and I'd, and I'd be there with my milk and cookies watching, like, Judge Wapner. And, um, I mean, it was like you'd see stuff like uh, my neighbor's cat went into their yard and tore up the flower bed. And it's they do like the money, like like four hundred and fifty dollars, you know, and they the plaintiff bringing this case, the case of the renegade kitty. And they do some you know more serious stuff sometimes. I think there'd be like the, the suntan booth like broke down and turned up on high. And so this woman would be coming in like half her face, like all red and bandages and the case of the radiated sun beast, you know, and, and then they'd have to work through this stuff and they'd, she'd tell her story and he'd tell his story and they'd go back and forth. And sometimes we'd get nasty. Sometimes Judge Wapner would have to say, hold on a second, hold on a second. Oh, wow. We'd get really intense. And, you know, like, what is up with that? (laughs) Like, why do we get so excited about those things? I mean, why are we so attracted to the, to the drama, to the vitriol, to the, I mean, it's like, it's, um, it's just, it's a puzzle about the human heart that we are attracted to controversy, that we're attracted to, uh, physical violence. We're also attracted to emotional violence. I mean, nobody goes to a movie to watch two hours of planting flowers, right? You, you go to a movie to watch like bang em ups and shoot em ups and like, that's what people go to movies for. And, and we can kind of look at a show like People's Court and think, oh, it's just fun entertainment and let's go watch it. And isn't it interesting? But the reality is that we're going to read about today, the central issues going on in the hearts of these people on people's court are really serious to God. And, and, and we watch it and we think it's funny and it's trivial. But the truth is God, if I could put this kind of crudely, God has saved us to never be a plaintiff or a defendant on people's court. <laughs> like God is not blessed, I don't believe, by people's court. You know, he, he wants a fair justice system, that's for sure. But that's a concession for a broken and fallen world. 
And, and when it comes to the church, God is going to talk about today that, that this kind of behavior, this taking each other to court over, um, over things of this life as we'll look into it, there's some qualifications here. But there's a way that we can engage in these things with the world and with each other that God is really displeased by and that are really, really dangerous. And the Corinthian church was, was on the cusp of finding themselves having another church tire blowout because of the way they were engaging a culture of people's court. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we go. But let's, let's take a look at this passage, then we'll talk a little bit about it and hopefully get some application from it. So I'm going to start reading 1 Corinthians 6, and I'm going to go through verse 1 through verse 11. Now, just to let you guys know, heads up ahead of time, there's going to be some, some uh, flammable words here. You're going to hear a couple of words. You're going to be like, whoa, okay, today's talk is not about sexual immorality. We talked about that a little bit the last couple of weeks, but Paul's going to use those words to try to explain the importance of people's court and what's going on there to try to show them how, how serious it is. Um, so, you know, when you get those words, just recognize we will deal with those words in weeks to come, but, but the, today's message is not primarily about that. It's about, it's about the other issues that Paul is comparing to things like sexual immorality. So I'm going to start verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 11, and then I'm going to beg God with your help for his help. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let us pray. Lord, I am super aware right now of my weaknesses, of my sinful proclivities. Lord, I'm aware that I'm going to preach a passage about which the principles that you're calling for, Lord, in terms of wanting to do a work through this passage. Lord, there are principles in my heart that you want to work on. 
I, I need to be preached to by this passage more than I preach it, Lord, I believe. And, and yet, Lord, you have us in this book for a reason. And you have this word today for all of us for a reason. And Lord, though I am weak and I am sinful, Lord, I am also your son and I am in a room with your sons and daughters. We are your children. And as we've been singing about and preaching to ourselves through, through the worship this morning, greater is you who is in us than he who is in the world. So Lord, not for our glory and not because of our worthiness, but for Jesus' glory, for your glory, and because of your worthiness and your son's worthiness. Hear our prayer now. And preach your word to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And use me, Lord God, to be a blessing to your people. And protect them where and with I might not be a blessing to them. Through my error or weakness. Lord, let each of us hear you speaking to us. Help our hearts this morning to be humble. To hear you. Help our hearts, Lord God, to be soft. Help our hearts, most of all, be preoccupied with you speaking to us. Even now, help my heart to be preoccupied, Lord, with you speaking to me. May that be true for all of us, God, that we would welcome your words into our heart. And be transformed by it through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here we go. Coming back to verse 1 through 4. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The central problem here for this church in this situation is that they're not resolving disputes internally that should be resolved internally. In addition, they were seeking to resolve the disputes through the world and in worldly ways. And we saw before, when we talked about what was going on in chapter 5, that they were dealing, they were failing to deal with an issue of sexual morality of the church that was obvious, it was severe, and they were proud of it, their apathy about it. And now they're facing what Paul calls a trivial matter, pertaining, he says, to this life. These are not criminal matters. They're not issues. And this is important for us to understand when we think about law, we think about courts, we think about people suing us or us suing people, what that might mean. Paul is not dealing with in this passage about criminal matters or issues that would involve criminal law. This is not court cases involving physical or sexual abuse, for instance. This is not matters regarding children or spousal abuse. This is not about a woman who needs to sue her husband because he's not providing child support after a broken marriage. This is not about people who are trying to protect each other or their loved ones from predators. It's really, really important to keep that in mind. Because we'll see in other parts of the scripture, Paul will call for submission to the government, particularly over criminal issues. And so an important aside, this is just a little tangent here. This is one of the reasons why... 
we would never try to handle any criminal issues that involve the possibility of harm to, for instance, children internally. That kind of thing is a, a purview of the, of the courts, of the law, of the government. Maryland requires you, you may not know this, but Maryland requires you, for instance, to report any child abuse you're aware of. And any legal pastoral right that we have as elders of the church, we do have a right for confidentiality. We've told you in previous letters and communiques that we've, we forsake that. And we as well are committed to go to the authorities to get their help when it involves the danger to children. But these are not those kinds of disputes. This is not a criminal case. This is almost surely involving a civil dispute over property or money. The words around it, fraudulence and pertaining to this life in trivial cases, mean the content of the dispute is not being elevated as a significant thing. Another thing, it's not a church discipline issue, clear, like last week. It's not adultery. It's not murder. It's not even something that would, would have been uh, on a lower grade but still significant, like slander or fornication. Paul addresses those things. He'd want those things dealt with. No, this is really a Judge Judy or a Judge Wapner thing. It's not significant in itself. It's potentially, you know, where's my animal? And it's in the next guy's tent or Why didn't that carpenter finish the job? That kind of thing. But it wasn't so much the dispute, like the constant dispute, as what they were doing with the dispute and how their hearts were engaging with the dispute. That was a big deal. And that's why we also can take things away from this passage as we move on. What they were doing with the dispute, what their hearts were doing around the dispute, is what Paul's trying to address. And it's hugely significant. A little background is helpful to know. We've talked before about this at the beginning of the series. One of the reasons why Corinthians is a great book for us is because it meets us in a lot of ways about where we are as a church, but it also meets us in a lot of ways about where we are in the world. Corinth, like us, maybe even more than us, was a supremely litigious society. Did I get that word right, litigious? By the way, any words missing here? I did. It means they really liked to sue each other. To put it casually, you might say that they loved to sue each other. Underneath that, they loved to judge each other. Two of the folks I studied as I was looking over this chapter, I don't know if they were connected to each other, but they both said the same phrase. And the phrase was this. Everyone in Corinth was a lawyer. Everyone in Corinth was a lawyer. And what they meant by that was, was that everybody was engaged in this culture, whether you were actually suing somebody or not. It was typical, for instance, in this culture to... To, to be picked up in the morning to serve as a juror, like, like a migrant worker who comes to get a day for, for landscaping work. You know, some of you guys, when I was in Arlington, I lived there, I would drive by a certain corner, and these, these folks would just come out and be ready to get picked up to do certain day jobs. It was how they supported and cared for their family. And they would come, and a guy would come by in a truck, and he'd say, I need you, 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 and they'd get on the truck, and they'd go work on the job. There was, this, there was a culture like that about serving in juries because it was so prevalent. I think it was Alistair Begg was talking about the fact that there was one story about a jury that involved 6,000 people who were involved in this. And it was, a, it was a means of entertainment to go and watch these trials and see them happening. And the courts themselves, they were not good courts. So when Paul talks about you're going to the unbeliever, you're going to the unrighteous, he's not just talking about the fact that they didn't believe in the Lord. He's talking about the fact that they were aggressively unrighteous. 
They were full of bribery. They were full of favoritism and oppression. The courts were a means to one-up your enemy. They were a means to unfairly establish your rank and your status and put it to somebody else. And so when you, when you see all those things, you see Paul's dealing with something that's really, really serious. I mean, it would be serious. We'll explain it. It would be serious in any case. But they were, in effect, in taking each other to court. They were letting each other loose on a justice system that was severely unjust and potentially really dangerous for each other. And, of course, they were making a terrible witness for the cause of Christ before the world. And so in the context, in the very first verse, Paul uses this word that could be translated, how dare you? Like, how dare you? It's a really, really strong scold. He calls out this church and says, how dare you? And then he moves into this other aspect of of their, their situation. Not only are they doing this thing, throwing each other to the court system that was going to be oppressive and flat flare up their enmity to each other, He says, don't you know, don't you know, when I first did this sermon, I called the message, don't you know, and then I changed it to (laughs) something else. But the point is, Paul is saying, he'll say six times in this chapter, don't you know? And one of the things he says right here is, don't you know who you are? He says, you are saints. Literally, you are set apart ones. You are sacred ones. You are holy ones. That's what that word saints means. It's the same Greek word for holy, agios. You are holy. Don't you know you're holy? Don't you know you're set apart from this world system of corruption and oppression and one-upping each other and devouring and biting each other? And he says to the church, he says, you're the church. You're the called out ones. That Greek word ecclesia, it means called out. You're called out from this and you're returning to it. And Paul says, you're going to judge the world. You are going to, you're going to the world to get judgment from them. God's called you to judge the world someday. You're going to judge angels someday, he says. This is a mysterious, can we put that verse up just so people know what I'm talking about? You don't have any slides for this message? They were in the, um, they were in the plan. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the. I don't have Oh, you don't have them? Okay. That's okay. Well, let me make sure. That's good to know, just so I can make sure that we're, um, that we're, you guys are hearing it from the Word of God itself. So, referring to this passage in verse 2 and 3, where Paul says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more than matters to this life? You don't have a lot of information. I don't have a lot of information on what it means that we're going to judge the world and we're going to judge angels. But we do see glimmers of this truth in a few other passages. Luke 22, Jesus says to his disciples, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation 20 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, and I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And here's what Paul says about those people. He says, They came to life 
and reigned with Christ. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's a couple other passages we could go to. But this is really in keeping with what we talked about last week when we talked about the church as the body of Christ. Jesus didn't save us to keep us as two-month-old Christians. Jesus saved us to grow us to maturity and to give us really important things to do. Last week and the week before, we talked about the fact that this church was given the assignment to literally be the means of God saving this immoral man through the process of expelling him in the next book, 2 Corinthians, because of the harsh discipline that needed to be brought to him because of his obvious immorality and unrepentance, the man ends up returning to the church for forgiveness. And Paul says, throw your arms around that guy and love on him like crazy because you've done your job. And what had the church done? They had, instrumentally, God was a source, they had saved him from hell. By walking out the process of church discipline. And so now we see a similar thing. God wants us to do his work. He wants us to do this work. We are to be his body, his arms, his ears, his hands and feet. We're to be Jesus. And that's not just serving, you know, water bottles to, to, to Frederick City citizens who are hot on Saturdays to try to tell them to invite to come to church. No, it's like you guys be a means of saving these people. Paul said, I have become all things to all men, meaning, hey, I'll I'll, I'll dress like them. I'll learn their language. I've become all things to all men so that by God's grace, I might what? Save. Save some. God has handed us the most important tasks that he can conceive of to be his instruments to save people. And here he tells us he's also going to use us to be his instruments to do his work, to judge people. To judge angels. I mean, it's just crazy, right? Like, you are someday going to, whether it means bring decisions upon, convict, or it means rule over and administrate, you are going to be over angels. And you're going to be able to do that because you're holy ones, because you're set apart ones, because he's put the Holy Spirit in you. So Paul is saying, you can do more than you know. And you're running out to the unsaved, the unrepentant, the unregenerate to tell you who gets to keep the lawnmower or whether the cat has to be put away or gets to be rehabilitated. So Paul says, again, trying to wake them up, I say this to your shame. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. If you're going to rule over the world an angel, surely there must be someone, even one person wise enough among you to settle a dispute about whose tent it is or whose salary is still owed or how much carpentry on that project has been left unfinished. But instead, you guys are filled with so much discord and enmity that you are throwing each other to the wolves of the judicial system in Corinth and making a mockery of the name of Christ before the world, a world that needs his light, a world that needs to see that you're different. You should be ashamed, he says. It's another thing we talked about last week. You're to be a light to the world. You're to be his body doing his work, you to be his bride, pure for him. And you're to be a light that the world might know 
that Christ is who he said. Paul says in this case, it would be better to let yourself be wronged than to take your disputes before a corrupt and dying world that doesn't need to see your chaos. It needs to see your love for one another. To have lawsuits at all with one another, meaning to go to court before unbelievers with one another, it's already a defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong, he says. Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves, wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Paul's saying the very fact that you're going to court, there's going to be a winner, there's going to be a loser. Everybody's a loser. One commentator writes about this. In any instance of litigation, the goal is to achieve a personal victory. Paul states as emphatically as you can that the outcome of the present case is already known. No matter what the result of the lawsuit, whatever the plaintiff or the defendant wins, it's a defeat for both parties. With the church as a whole becoming the real loser. Another guy draws out the devastating social implications of such a legal proceeding for the church. Litigation, by its very nature, promoted enmity from the slander that was part and parcel of the trial and could only fuel the church's factionalism. Contrast this, Paul says, this biting and devouring to Jesus' call upon the church, upon all his disciples. What is Jesus' call in these cases upon his church and upon his disciples? We hear his call in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. That's what the disciples are supposed to look like. But instead, because they can't handle their business as a church, they're bringing it out into the streets. Now, not every passage says everything. This is not a call, for instance. I just want to make sure that we're careful. This is not a call, for instance, for wives to stay in a home with a husband who's beating them. This is not a call to martyrdom for martyrdom's sake. Paul defended his ministry vociferously against false accusations and slander. Paul called for the expulsion of the immoral from the church. Jesus rarely left an accusation from his enemies unanswered. There are times where you have to say, this isn't right. But Paul's talking about doing it for the right reasons in the right way. This isn't a call to put yourself in situations on purpose where, where broken trust, for instance, would easily and wisely suggest otherwise. Like, you know, it's one thing to forgive your father's drinking and what it's done to your childhood and to work through that and to come to a place where you can forgive him. It's a big deal. That's your call. But it's a whole other thing to get in a car with your father when he's driving drunk, right? And so God's not calling us not to be wise, But there are many times, Paul says, where he and Jesus are saying, we're just called to simply let it go. We're we're called to forbear. We're called to fight, to trust God, to bring justice in the right way and to bring mercy in the right way. And if and when we must resolve the conflict, which will also come, because we're taught to do that as well, we must seek to do it in God's way. 
And then Paul finishes this appeal with the strongest warning and the strongest encouragement possible. This is just like, you know, 17 messages. He says, after scolding them, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a great warning and a great encouragement. I say warning because Paul is telling them in frank terms that this unity and the the enmity, the factionalism that they're celebrating and embracing... It's akin to being an idolater. It's akin to being an adulterer. It's akin to being a homosexual. It's akin to being a murderer. And Paul is saying, if you keep going like this, it will show that you're not really God's people to begin with. Do you feel the severity of that? Paul's not talking about people who struggle with these things. We all struggle with these things. Many of us have to fight temptations to ideals of our heart. Homosexuality. Being greedy. Fighting to stay away from being captured by the drink and the bottle or drugs. Big and little things. We all have to fight. Paul's talking about people who are Just committed to this, embracing it, running towards it. And he's saying, don't be fooled. If you embrace this and practice this, if this is your functional identity, you are not. You don't repent from that. You don't fight that. You are not God's kid. You are going to hell. So it's very severe. And it's amazing. He's talking about Judge Wapner stuff, you know? Because underneath the Judge Wapner stuff is this enmity, this greed. But then there's this encouragement that's as huge, if not huger, than the warning. He says, he says, listen, the way out for you is not just simply to come back to the... To, 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 I've got to perform for God. The way out for you is not simply to come back and... I've got to be moral. I've got to be moral. I got to do good or I'm going to burn in hell. No, no, Paul says the way back is not to repent so that perhaps God will forgive and accept you. No, the way back is to remember. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. You are saints. You aren't living like it. You aren't acting like it. You have forgotten who you are. You are holy. You were washed by the blood of the Lamb. Don't disbelieve it. Take it back. You were set apart as holy. Don't deny it. It's the truth about you. You were declared righteous in God's courtroom. He's not interested in you doubting that right now. Confess that it's true. You were made new. You did become a dwelling place for his Holy Spirit. This is where repentance begins. Turning back to God. This is where it was severely needed for these failing folks. Remember who you are. You are a forgiven people. 
so. Now, not many of us will receive lawsuits from other committed believers. As we close here, let's just zoom out a little bit and consider the roots under the lawsuit mentality that we can be familiar with. I'm going to try to get through this as quick as I can, so hang with me here. Some thoughts for us. The Corinthian culture loved judging. They loved criticism. They loved moral superiority. And we too can walk in a spirit of judgment over each other. And we can fail to tell each other who we are. You know, it was interesting, having gone through the blessing point in the solemn assembly, one of the things I did, as Ken kept talking about, how the roots of where you are are often connected to where you've been as a, as a kind of a church organism, your church history, your church pedigree. I went back to <clears throat> some of the troubles that we were involved with as a part of Sovereign Grace Ministries. Many of you guys may not know what we were talking about, but we were part of a larger church family of churches called Sovereign Grace Ministries. And in 2012, there was a big, big struggle within this family of churches. And they brought in this group called Ambassador Reconciliation to try to help us through that as a family of churches. And ambassadors looked into stuff. They did a lot of like, church network-wide interviews and evaluations. And one of the things they said was, You guys are called Sovereign Grace, but you are really bad at giving each other grace when you sin. Particularly, you're really bad at proclaiming God's forgiveness over each other. When someone says, I'm sorry, when someone says, please forgive me. No, you, you, I mean, I'll I'll send out a link to it because it's an amazing read. But their point was, you're, you're really, really so good at the doctrine of sin. And putting each other's sin in the microscope lab and looking at the quality of each other's repentance and going through all the, you know, the rigmarole of looking under layer, under layer, under layer, just trying to discern each other's heart motives. Where is just that you're forgiven in God's name? I remember being with a couple of pastors. This is a long time ago. And one of the guys was confessing his sin. And... um you know, it, it was not a slight thing, but it was not uh, scandalous, and it was not like a controlling life pattern. But he confessed his sin in, in, a, in a, an accountability meeting. And the other guy, he just began to draw him out about that sin. And he did it, like, it felt like 25 minutes. And, and as I thought about the situation, I think we did talk about it. This is before, this is, I think it was long before 2012. It was... I just had this sense of like, okay, buddy, like, our brother has confessed his sin. Like, he's not hiding it. He did a fair job. Like, you need to proclaim he's forgiven. But but what was really going on was more questions, more questions, more questions about this and this and this and this and this and this. And it just felt strange. And it wasn't so much that those questions were bad, but they weren't surrounded and layered and interweaved. With, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're free. God has forgiven you. He's going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There was this lack of proclamation. It was more like we're just in the sin lab. And we're not celebrating God's grace. I feel like I've experienced that. I feel like I've probably done that. And maybe you guys feel that way too. But Paul is saying. I think he's saying. Be careful of a culture of judgment. Of being obsessed so much with, with what people are doing wrong that you forget God's grace over their lives and proclaiming forgiveness to them. And this church was so broken that they were willing to trash each other before a corrupt and watching world. 
we too can get caught up in a spirit of hurt and offense such that our hearts, they can get taken over, can't they? And we begin to trash each other with our mouths in subtle and not so subtle ways. We've talked about that over the last few weeks. It's just something I had to confess at the solemn assembly. Just uncharitable judgments, uncharitable spirits. Next thing I know, the words coming from my mouth are not building words anymore. So what are some of the answers to this type of judgmental attitude? Well, first, Paul says, remember what's at stake. This is not what God's people look like. You can't look like this without fighting it, without resisting it. And say you're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You can't be a people that fights and devours each other and, and think that you're God's children. You've got to fight it. Next, remember who you are. Just as lethal and thinking that, that you can go about your worldly way without fighting to love like Jesus commands you to is to put yourself in the penalty box to seek self-atonement through self-condemnation or some self-righteous sense of having to prove yourself to earn God's love back. Paul says that's deadly poison. Remember who you are. You are holy. You are forgiven. This is amazing grace. These people were stuck in the middle of their sin and enmity towards each other. Like they're stuck. They are stuck knee-deep in it. And Paul is saying... You are saints. You are holy. You are born again. You are God's children. It's just amazing grace. So, remember what's at stake. Remember who you are. And in our conflicts with each other, you know, remember the prayer we've been praying We've been asking God to fill us with his love in such a way that we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And in those words, we see in Ephesians 4, 1, in that prayer, if you've been reading that prayer, as we've been praying it, if you've been getting it at home, there's this call to walk in a manner worthy. Humility, gentleness, patience, this word forbearing with one another in love. Forbearing. Worthy of the gospel means that we, we walk like those who know they've been forgiven by Jesus He's been humble and patient and gentle and forbearing with us because he loved us when we did not deserve it. So we're called to show forbearance in one another. And one of the ways we do that is just saying, I can let this go. I don't have to, I don't have to confront, I have to get in the weeds with this person. I can let it go. So that's a good question to ask. Can I let this go? Can I let it go? Can I forbear? Can I recognize we all are broken? We all struggle with sin. But sometimes the question needs to be, what if I can't let this go? What do I do? Well, if you're tempted to grumbling and disputing, Paul tells us Philippians 2, you're, you're going, if you keep going that way, you're going to lose your light ability in the world. You're, you're going to, to not be able to be the light that God's called you to be. And so he gives us in his word ways out. He gives us loving confrontation. He gives us Matthew 18. He gives us go to your brother and talk to him. Come with questions. Come in a spirit of gentleness. He gives us that. And then he talks about the expansion of that. Because we're running out of time, I'm I'm just going to send you guys out again what we went through the psalm assembly the Peacemaker Covenant does a really nice job of putting together what does it look like to try to biblically, gently, lovingly bring conflict to each other and walk it out. And I'll send that to you.
But I, I just want to close with this. The same thing we've been talking about for the last few weeks is, is right here in this chapter. Let's continue to embrace these realities. God's called us to be his bride. He's called us to purify ourselves from biting and devouring, from judging, from enmity. He's called us to that because it pleases him first and foremost, because he wants us to look like him, a forgiving God, a humble God, a forbearing God, a listening God, a gentle God. That's the beauty in him that he wants to see in his bride. So let's ask God to help purify us of those judgmental, critical spirit attitudes that we're holding on to. I need to do it. I'm sure many of you need to do it. Secondly, he's called us to be his body. He's called us to do the work that he did when he was on earth. What did he do on earth? He saved. He forgave. He lovingly confronted. Let's do that work as well. Let's be his body. And thirdly, we're his light in this world. We do these things for him. We do these things for each other. We do these things as well so that our home is a home that we can invite others to. Our church is a place where people who are lost, who are broken, who are stuck in the world of Judge Wapner, not just on TV, but with their own moms and dads, with their own brothers and sisters, they're stuck in a world of judgment and oppression in their own relationships. They can come and find the people that are loving, that are kind, that are gracious, that are quick to forgive, that are quick to encourage and point each other towards Jesus. He has so much for us. I believe he has so much for us as we put our hearts to work on these things. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your warnings. Thank you for your encouragements. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.